Hunting a Killer is a fictional story recorded in chronological order. If you have not listened to the previous episodes, please go back and start from the beginning. We'll be here waiting for you. My dearest friend, I do hope you know how much I value your companionship. Our relationship, though it may be unconventional, is a precious thing. All friendships are. Yet where does one draw the line between friend and friendship? Are they inseparable? I used to think that was the case. Indeed, the world has once again disproved the myth of the incorruptible bond. I stand now behind yet another friend who has chosen to void our convivial camaraderie and betray me like so many others. Jacob, read it. George Madsen, unimaginative and cynical, he was my friend. Lloyd McGowan, ragged and wretched. He was my friend. And yet both of these men would not pour into our relationship as much of themselves as I did of myself. In the end, they siphoned from me more than I could bear. In this, they betrayed me. Heather Williams, Eyes as blue as the water she so loved. She was my friend. Valerie Madsen, a kind visitor with cheeks and lips pink as the sunset. She was my friend. My mother. She was my friend. But all of these women gave into temptations and in doing so betrayed me. But they were victims, too, like me, of the unjust world in which we live. And so I freed them, as only a true friend would do, from their temptation and from this unjust world. Look at the camera. I am sloughing the dead skin of my father shedding the feathers of my mother, and you must bear witness to my tragedy. I entreat you, my dearest friend, do not lose hope. Do not give in to temptation. Remain steadfast and loyal. I am leaving Darlington, but I am not leaving you. I know how to find you. You will hear from me soon. I cannot give up our friendship, no matter where I go. And so I leave this Hades to plant my dragon's teeth, to grow new companions, found my Thebes, 
and devour the Cadmus of the world. I am the Dragon Swan. Always. Circular Logic Studios presents A Phil Interrupted Production Hunting a Killer growing concern within the office. Agents looking over their back. Tension in the air. Suspicion at every turn. Because our latest package was not sent to the undercover mailing address as previous deliveries were from listening friends of America. This one was brought in by a regular mail carrier to our public mailing address of 600 Arch Street, 8th floor, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Not good. Our listening Friends of America pen pal knows about us. Son of a bitch. Not good at all. plunge into our newest package, I want to review some striking information I uncovered recently. And for the life of me, I could not see a connection between Lillian Grayson and any of the individuals in our case, aside from Lloyd McGowan. However, as in all cold cases, you go back to basics, review, reread, and research everything. I discovered a possible connection that puts some pieces of the puzzle in place. If you remember, Lillian Grayson was probably on birth control or pregnant at the time of her murder, correct? Okay. Now, there were three doctors listed at her autopsy, which took 11 hours to complete. It's very odd. It shouldn't have been more than two to three hours in a routine autopsy with one doctor. I have a hunch that this was because Lillian Grayson was giving birth to a child. 
a child that was illegitimate and conceived by one of the staff members at the institution. Again, remember Lillian suffered from anterograde amnesia, causing her new memories to be nearly non-existent. She wouldn't be aware of the rapes or the identity of the father, most likely. Of the staff we know of, a couple of employees seem to be most likely to be the child's father. First is Dr. Richter, the man in charge of operations at the O'Brien Asylum. Second, the custodian, Robert Zykuski, who had access to all the patients. Beyond these two, I suppose it is possible that any other employee could also be guilty. Maybe they were all in on it. I believe that the child was orphaned, and Lillian was then stabbed and murdered. The attending doctors made it seem as if she never had a child at all, and discarded her corpse on Weiss Island. This would explain why Dr. Richter wanted very badly to cover up the murder of Lillian Grayson, a murder that he pinned on Lloyd McGowan. This would also explain why Lloyd attacked the janitor. Perhaps Lloyd saw or knew something and wanted to do the right thing. In an effort to keep his secrets quiet and under wraps, Dr. Richter ordered Lloyd McGowan to be heavily sedated with drugs and kept in isolation for decades. It wasn't until many years later that Dr. Richter agreed to have Lloyd McGowan transferred to the Darlington, Maryland facility. If you recall, Dr. Richter expressed relief at having McGowan away from him. The man that showed an interest in Lloyd McGowan was none other than George Madsen. As soon as George acquired Lloyd McGowan, he reduced his medication to see if, and I quote, Lloyd had anything to say. I believe that George Madsen was cleverly investigating the disappearance and murder of Lillian Grayson because she was, in fact, his mother. George is around 50 years old, which matches up to the birth in 1967 from Lillian moments before she was disposed of. If you look at Lillian's autopsy report, it states that one of the doctors was named George Smith. It was common practice at the time for orphan children to be named after an attending doctor. This is how he received the name George. Although they slaughtered Lillian to cover their crimes, the men did not have the heart to execute this newborn baby. They named him George and sent him away from the facility. This is Lillian Grayson's connection to our case. I'm not sure why John William James would want us to know any of this. I'm not sure why he wanted to free Lloyd McGowan of the murder charges. All of that still remains a mystery. Now, this latest package from Listening Friends of America is jam-packed with information. It contains our correspondence from John William James, 
a listening Friends of America pen, a pig figurine, a wheel with the alphabet and numbers, and John William James' patient folder. There is no welcoming letter from listening Friends of America and no inspector notes assigned to the package. This is the first time either of such things were neglected, and it's no surprise, really. This package did not go to the fake address as the previous seven packages have. Something is a brew. Some questions we have had from the start of this case are at last being answered. Let's start with John William James' correspondence, and I have to tell you it's very disturbing. And not only for what John says within the letter, but the paper itself. As soon as we saw the correspondence within our package from Listening Friends of America, we knew something was very wrong. And the reason for this is because the envelope labeled friend appeared to be soaked in a red liquid. The letter inside was crinkly and brittle from the dried blood. I'd say half of the page was crusted in a deep red discolorization. Of course, we opened it with forensic care as to not ruin any of the potential DNA or fingerprints that may be on the letter or within the blood. It's extremely concerning to see the correspondence like this. Clearly, something horrible has taken place. The language and the tone is the same as previous communications from John William James. However, within this correspondence, John William James makes it very clear that he knows how to find us and that he won't let our relationship go. So, yeah, I think John William James is finally on to us. He knows how to find us. We believe he is the one who sent the package straight to our office. And as troubling as that is, there's more. He basically admits to murdering George Madsen, Valerie Madsen, Lloyd McGowan, Heather Williams, and his mother? God, who knows how many others there may be. Our deepest suspicions may in fact be true. John William James is eliminating players in his game right beneath our noses. A true serial killer. This is horrible. Absolutely horrible news. The other most interesting evidence in this package is a series of letters and emails with a particularly interesting one from Valerie Madsen herself. It reads, If you are reading this, then something horrible has happened to me. I no longer feel safe in my own house. I have sent our son away to live with family. For his safety, I will not say where. Why do I feel unsafe? I believe my husband, George, was murdered by a man named John William James, who is a patient at Listening Friends of America in Darlington, Maryland. 
but who has corrupted their institution for personal gain? I believe John James had help from Jacob Nielsen, who works there and who took over my husband's job after he disappeared. I cannot prove it, but I know it. He had something to gain after all. George was close to exposing John James, and I'm sure they killed him for it. Now I know what George knew, and I believe I made a mistake. They know that I know. I am writing this because if they come after me before I can prove anything, hopefully you will take up the investigation. Prove that John James killed my husband and put him in prison for the rest of his life. Here in this file is everything my husband looked into before he disappeared, and everything I have gathered since. Here's what I think happened. John James attempted to manipulate a custodian into doing his dirty work. The custodian was sent away when John James's plan was discovered to keep the matter quiet. John James's second attempt was to manipulate another patient, Lloyd McGowan, into helping him in some way. Somehow, after covertly testing their security, surveillance, and competence, and perhaps with the aid of Lloyd McGowan, John James was able to devise a procedure to get himself in and out of the facility without drawing attention to his movements. This freed him to murder my husband and hide his body. I recently read in the news that Lloyd McGowan was found dead at his home. He seemed nice, if I remember right, but gullible. I think once Lloyd McGowan helped John James to escape the facility the first time, he realized what an evil man he is. Maybe he tried to cut ties and John James couldn't allow a loose end like that? I'm certain Lloyd McGowan knew something that could put John James in real prison. He doesn't anymore. Jacob Nilsson benefited from George's disappearance. He's connected somehow. John James's new lackey? I emailed him about George, and he has yet to respond. That was my mistake. That's all I know so far. Take this and the rest and put John William James away. He has another contact, some pen pal through the Listening Friends program. Find them. They must know more. Valerie. Reading this letter leads me to believe that she, in fact, was not the one who composed the previous email reply to me. Reading her letter proves to me that she loved her husband and her son very much. The tone of the email reply was cold, uncaring, and distant. She would have never responded in that manner. I believe John William James was the person behind that email. I believe he killed Valerie. She knew too much. John William James was after anyone who knew too much, anyone willing to expose him and how evil he truly was. Valerie has a lot of great points, and I think she was beginning to break the case herself, which is most impressive. Let's take a look at the information provided. The first set of pages is from the Listening Friends of America internal documents and is labeled DOG Transfer Patient Intake slash General Information Form. It reads... Facility, Darlington. Patient name, John William James. Date of birth, 629-1956. List of charges. In 1976, matricide. 1977, patricide. 1977, 
arson. Oh boy. Houston, we have a problem. We long suspected that John may have killed his father, but we were under the impression that he did this because of his father's abuse to both John and his mother. We thought his father murdered his mother, but this memo clearly states that John killed his mother in 1976, and then his father in 1977. Remember, John William James alluded to his mother's murder in his latest correspondence to us as well. Perhaps the mythological Signius John refers to was his mother. The letter goes on to state, his plea was insanity, childhood abuse, trauma, and psychiatric evaluation. He was transferred to the ward of the state, assigned to library and garden duties, and was committed to Listening Friends of America on May 18th 1992. His diagnoses are as follows. Non-conclusive, ongoing, but possible for schizophrenia, grandiose delusions, and post-traumatic stress disorder. Grandiose delusions? I definitely feel that John William James fits this diagnosis. As I stated a while back, he reminds me of Hannibal Lecter feeling like he's above everybody else, plotting and using everyone else for his gain, almost toying with others. Another thing of note is the lack of a patient photo. The page itself very distinctly has a diminutive tear mark where a photo was pulled from the page. Evidently, John doesn't want us to see his face. He's a sick bastard. in this package, we received five library cards. All five of these books were last borrowed by John William James. The first, Our Father Who Art in Hell. The second, The Oxford Dictionary of Classical Mythology and Religion. The third, Stories in the Stars, an Atlas of Constellations. The fourth, Demonology and Devil Lore. The last book borrowed, Infant's Cabinet of Birds and Beasts. None of these books were ever returned. After looking further into them and going back through previous packages, it confirms that these are, in fact, the books that John William James photocopied pictures from and sent to us in previous packages. We already found most of these books through our examination, but it's clear whoever is sending these packages wanted us to know. We have also received correspondence from George Madsen to Felix, who appears to be the president of the Listening Friends of America, or somebody with a high stature. George's first letter reads, Felix, 
I am maintaining a copy of our correspondence for my records. I recommend you do the same. I believe that a patient at our facility is plotting something to the detriment of our organization. Mr. James, you may recall, has been under special observance for quite some time by manipulating proxy agents to avoid our notice. He is planning something big. I have no real proof other than I know the patients here and they are beginning to act strangely. Most are now deferring to Mr. James with a small shout of revenge. Believe me when I say this is not their normal behavior. I hope you might allow us the budget for an extra orderly on staff with the discreet objective of covertly investigating Mr. James and his movements. George. George Matson knows something is not right with John William James. George is catching on to him. He's trying to reach out for help. The reply he received from Felix reads, George, I ask you to please use the Listening Friends of America system to contact me in the future. However, there will be no further discussion of the matter regarding which you contacted me. Shifts in social dynamics are common in any group, particularly among our facilities. I have seen it before. It is nothing that cannot be handled at the appropriate time with the appropriate evidence. I am beginning to think you are growing paranoid in your position and are letting your fears get the better of you. Relax. We will take care of you should the need arise, but I assure you this is nothing to be concerned about. Please do not contact me through the mail again. F. Um, wow. Can we say dismissive? Felix isn't around John William James on a daily basis like George is. What an unsupportive leader. I am sure George knows what he is doing. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been promoted to the ranks of VP. Clearly, if George is reaching out for help, then there is a serious problem here. Also, I find it interesting that under Felix's name at the top of the letterhead, it reads Ex Literis, which, if you combine everything together, Felix Ex Literis in Latin means happiness from the letter. Strange, I must say. Felix is also clearly unhappy that George sent him private mail and went outside of the intranet communication system at LFOA. George's last reply to Felix reads, Felix, you don't seem to understand. Mr. James is spreading his influence into the staff here and his reach is wide. I do not feel confident in our inter-office server. That is why I am taking these lengths to contact you from outside of the office. Mr. James is listening. I have even received recommendations from our psychiatric staff to upgrade Mr. James's supervision. Kathy is one of the few people I still trust. We can bill it as a seasonal or temp position. No one will have to know anything else about it. I am growing increasingly worried. I caught him smiling at me from the garden. Please just allow one more orderly. G. This poor man. He sounds desperate. He is really trying to get the support he needs. I think it is horrible that the leader of this entire company is essentially failing at his job and not supporting his employees. Granted, the job, I'm sure, is unpredictable and can be dangerous. But without a doubt, I honestly believe that George wouldn't have sought out the help from his superior unless it was extremely warranted. And in this case, it was. But it will be too late before Felix realizes the mistake he made by ignoring George's pleads for help.
In George's letters to Felix, he briefly mentions an employee named Kathy, who he still trusts. There are three typed letters on official Listening Friends of America stationery, from Kathy to George included. They describe what appears to be a series of tests conducted on Mr. James. These tests are titled Cobra 1 and Cobra 2. Let's review Cobra 1 first. To George Madsen, Cobra 1, patient 1618, John James. George, as you requested, we placed patient John James into Cobra 1. Unfortunately, his performance proved to be disappointing. James appeared to be completely lucid. Yet he just sat there. He said nothing, nor did he move or make any discernible action towards progressing through the therapy. He did not even get up from his chair. Not only did he not solve Cobra 1, but in one hour and 20 minutes he did not even begin. We had to cancel the session at that point and pull him out. I know you expected him to solve everything quite quickly, but he did nothing. I can show you the video if you'd like, but it's pretty boring stuff. I've never seen anything like it. I'll offer you some small bits of data to give you some deeper context to my point. James is far and away unique in his performance. Among his peers, no patient has failed to at least start advancing through Cobra 1. No patient has taken longer than 30 minutes to realize they are participating in a session, or at least that things are not what they seem. No patient has taken longer than one hour to complete HAT-001 once they begun in earnest. I'm sorry. I know you had high expectations from this patient, but I have no idea how to categorize this data as anything other than a total failure. I am considering James to be an outliner, and I recommend we do not waste our time keeping him in the COBRA program. I would like to discuss this with you at your convenience with how to proceed with Mr. James and any further analysis. Regards, Kathy. Sounds like you bombed. Doesn't sound like the John William James we know, right? We'll check out this second set of tests called Cobra 2. To George Madsen, Cobra 2, patient 1618, John James. George, as you requested during our talk the other day, we went forward with placing James in Cobra 2. What happened was strange. The patient began the session by waiting like before. I was fully prepared to remove him and place him back in his room. But as soon as I made the order, he started moving. There's no way he could have been responding to me, as you know. It must have been a coincidence, but it was nevertheless a little unsettling. He then started moving slowly, taking his time and walking very deliberately to various places in the room. He didn't do anything other than move from one place to another. The strange thing is that he wasn't in any of the correct places for Cobra 2, but he went to all the right places for Cobra 1. I was with one of our techs who noticed it first. The rooms are identical in their dimensions, but very different in their layout. I had them isolate images from the CCTV for each position where Mr. James paused. We then overlaid the image with the photo taken at the same angles of Cobra 1 and the patient's positions were exactly correct. I believe Mr. James could have solved Cobra 1 in record time had he only acted 
He must have some sort of a delay between his reasoning, analysis, and motor skills. I'm not quite sure how to explain his behavior. I've never seen anything quite like it. With your permission, I'd like to place Mr. James under special observation to better understand his behaviors. Regards, Kathy. And there you have it. Mr. James clearly understood what was expected of him in Cobra 1 testing and simply decided not to perform the tasks expected of him. He then acted out Cobra 1 perfectly during Cobra 2 testing. Even though the test was designed for the patient, it seems like he turned the tables and he was testing the staff himself. The next letter from Kathy to George is concerning. It reads, George, per your request and out of concern for the safety of our patients here, I am writing to inform you of some of the observations we have made regarding patient 1618. He has several fixations he frequently references in our discussions. These include a swan and its corresponding constellation Cygnus, which he seems to have associated with his mother, and a dragon and its corresponding constellation Draco, which he has associated with his father. Mentioning either of his parents or their respective symbolic projections stimulates tension in 1618. You can see that he has taken a keen interest in astronomy, particularly the stories behind the naming of the constellations. I once suggested a book from our library and was looking at the records. He had checked it out, but he has yet to return it. That was last year. There are other fixations that continue to arise in sessions. He assigns to acquaintances the roles of various mythological characters. He is particularly fond of using the myth of Orpheus to describe individuals he has grown fond of. I believe in that scenario, the individuals Orpheus and 1618 is Hades. I'm uncertain of who plays the role of Eurydice. Regardless, 1618 displays behaviors consistent with other patients diagnosed with schizophrenia and grandiose delusions. The popular lay term, Messiah Complex, would be a suitable euphemism. I should also take this opportunity to warn you about something. 1618 has become intimate with one of our custodians here. I have noticed them speaking on several occasions, and 1618 always appears to be behaving as if he is in charge. When I brought it up, our custodian denied any and all interaction with the patient. This is not normal behavior for our staff. And with your permission, I would like to recommend that our custodial manager be transferred to another facility to avoid any potential conflicts or disruptions. Perhaps we can give him a promotion and put him in charge of the custodial department at our new facility to quell any suspicions. Regards, Kathy. This is a rather disturbing inner office memo for George to receive, I'm sure. Now, none of these letters are dated, so it's tough to get an exact time frame. However, Kathy is confirming many of the suspicions we've had. She is distinctly worried about Mr. James' influence on staff and patients. Kathy's last paragraph spoke of a custodian Mr. James was speaking with. She recommended that he be promoted and sent to another facility to alleviate Mr. James' impacts upon him. 
Well, I looked into this claim and found this exact scenario played out. The Listening Friends of America Facebook page posted about a custodian named Aaron DeVale who started in 2004. He was transferred to the Colorado Springs facility and promoted to custodial manager. This behavior displayed by John William James reminds us of a cult leader in the making, slowly but deliberately attempting to poison the minds of those around him. I couldn't get over the fact that John William James killed his mother. There had to be a reason, so I dug back into her paperwork, and I think I found the answer. I hadn't noticed this before, but exactly nine months before John was born, Mrs. James made a visit to Dr. William Jenkins for a shoulder injury presumably inflicted from the abusive Mr. James. This visit was dated September 26, 1955. Mrs. James specifically mentions keeping her visits and communications with the doctor hidden from her husband. Nine months later, on June 29, 1956, Mrs. James delivers a baby boy, John William James, and secretly names him after his true father, Dr. William Jenkins. I think it's entirely possible that John figured out his mother had an affair with her doctor, therefore his trust in her was broken, resulting in her murder. Considering how much admiration he expresses for his mother, this would explain his resentment towards her. Despite her love for him and his glowing memories of her, this one act could not be overlooked. Now, another side note. In one of Heather's letters, she talks about how her and John William James are not of this world and can't wait for them to get on their boat and sail away. She then mentions the sticks. I thought this was a reference to the band, but as I researched more and I found that the Styx is a river between this world and the underworld in Greek mythology. It holds the tortured souls of those that can't afford to pay the ferry to cross. I believe John William James was luring Heather in for the kill. We know that his movements are not nearly as restricted as they used to be, so he could have left the facility to dispose of Heather, George, and Lloyd McGowan.
While George Madsen was attempting to contact Felix, he was also taking personal notes in regard to John William James, the first of which is after the first test they did on Mr. James, Cobra 1. George's notes read, Kathy said he just sat there for 80 minutes. He was testing them, their patience, to know their response time. He was thinking something that whole time, I'm sure of that. Why would Kathy wait 80 minutes before intervening? Why wouldn't she wait longer or less? 80 minutes exactly. John James gains respect of peers. Tests are tests. Tests are staff. Is he planning a coup? 80 minutes. Perhaps 80 minutes is the length of time Mr. James has to escape and return from the institution? His next set of notes reads, John James believes he is some sort of savior. Without his custodian, he's taken to another patient, Lloyd McGowan. He knows we can't transfer Lloyd without risking exposing that controversy with Richter. If someone found out, Felix would have a lot to answer for. How much does James know? More than he lets on. Keep an eye on McGowan. Two eyes on James. Nothing good will come of this. Is James testing us again? What? His reach? Our surveillance? Need to get Felix on board so I can control this situation better. And the last set of notes. He's coming for me. Need to stop him. He can't be stopped. He's in control. He's making it all happen. The stars are only the beginning. It's where it all begins. He'll slaughter us like pigs. He hasn't taken his medicine for months. Where does he hide it? Where did it go? Where will I go? I can stop him. Call Felix. Call the police. There's no proof. I'll just sound crazy. No one believes me. No one to save me. I need to keep myself safe. Keep Valerie safe. Noah safe. He's not crazy. He's not delusional. He's evil. We were all so wrong. Now we pay. It's all so nonsensical. God, it is heart-wrenching. His pleads for help from Felix, worrying about the safety of himself and his family. He knows that John William James is manipulative, evil, extremely smart, and knows how to work this system. He does sound like he's losing his mind, but in all seriousness... Look at what he's been going through. He admits it himself. No one believes him. If his own superior wouldn't honor his requests of protection, who would? He probably felt alone, lost. He was losing control. He knew that John William James was on to him, and Mr. James was going to stop him. In this package, we received two round alphabet wheels. One a bit smaller than the other, which actually fits perfectly inside the bigger one. 
We also received a photocopy paper with some interesting things on it, scripted writing, one of which says always, with the A broken off, uh, Cygnus Draconis, the letters E, F, E, D, Z, G, G, E, P, S, B, L, M, I. And the numbers, 60, 463, 334, stacked on top of each other with a question mark underneath of them. There's also a sad face with X's as eyes. It took some time to figure this out, but it turns out the two wheels go together and it's actually called a rotten wheel. I knew that the random array of letters was the puzzle he wanted us to solve. But to figure that out was no easy feat. Until I realized there were 14 letters. There were also 14 letters in Cygnus Draconis. So we had to use Cygnus Draconis as our guide. The first rule of thumb is that letter A is always your starting point on the big wheel. Then you line up the next starting letter on the smaller wheel. In this case, it's the letter C. So once you have the letter A on the big wheel lined up with the letter C on the smaller wheel, then you can begin to decode your first letter. In the code John William James gave us, the letter is E. You find the E on the big wheel and find the corresponding letter on the smaller wheel, which is the letter W, and so on and so forth. Yes, this is very time consuming and very tedious, but that message we have discovered is we are all reborn. I do not know exactly what he is implying, but I can only speculate that what he means is that once we die, we are reborn. John William James is a twisted individual for sure. For the numbers, we have not yet been able to decipher those, if they mean anything at all, or if it was just used as a distraction. The last remaining item was a pen with the words, Listening Friends of America, printed on it. At first glance, it appeared like your normal basic ballpoint pen. Then I noticed that the back end of the pen came apart. The back piece dislodged and detached from the rest of the pen. It was a small, hidden USB drive. Like the smallest one I've ever seen. I plugged it into my laptop, and a single file was on the thumb drive. It was titled, Farewell, and the file was zipped in a .rar, or a .rare, file. This is used to compress large files to a more suitable size. I attempted to unzip the file, but it was encrypted. Damn it! I needed a password in order to access the file. 
So naturally, I started to guess the password. LFOA, John William James, Signius, Darlington, Cadmus, the numbers 413 from the lock special agent just solved, the dragon swan. called in Special Agent Jess, and she suggested, Try We Are All Reborn. I type in the letters and hit enter. A video file opens. My dearest friend, I do hope you know how much I value your companionship. Our relationship my God. Though it may be unconventional, his oppression. The video shows Jacob Nielsen reading a letter and looking terrified. Jacob is sitting at a desk, and the entire room is covered in a protective plastic. He is clearly beside himself with fear. It's hard to watch. A man dressed in scrubs, with his head purposely cut out of the top portion of the video, periodically walks behind Jacob and talks to him and points to the letter. I am the Dragon Swan. At the end of the video, without any warning, the man cuts Jacob's throat, and blood spills onto the letter. The same letter that we just received from John William James. Holy crap. We need to move now. Tell the SWAT, the task force, and everyone else you can round up. We are hitting the Listening Friends of America campus in Darlington now. Everybody move! Let's move! probably wondering what happened. We rounded up the FBI strike team and hit the Listening Friends of America campus in Darlington, Maryland, hard with full force. We found an overwhelming amount of evidence. However, the facility was left in near ruin 
by the time we arrived. Patients aimlessly milling about, and the little remaining staff confused and scrambling to keep the facility functioning. It was pretty much a disaster. Needless to say, the Darlington facility is now shut down. After the horrible events that took place, it's no surprise they closed the doors. You know, we conducted interviews with every single person remaining in that building. And everyone we talked to knew John William James. Seems he really did make the rounds. And despite all the information they told us about him, one question remained and nobody had an answer. Where is John William James? He played every last one of us for fools, the FBI included. John William James vanished without a trace. The case has now gone cold. Special Agent Jess and I have had FBI surveillance teams sent to the Concord Point Lighthouse and other areas of interest with the hopes of catching him. But nothing yet. Now, we aren't giving up our quest for justice. Not by a long shot. We will never stop hunting a killer of this type. Ever. But for now, he's gotten the better of us. As unjust as that is, I can't say that everything is bad. My sleepless nights and nightmares have stopped since Special Agent Jess and I fell in love. Being happy with my girlfriend and the life we share has stopped all of that. But I will always have that nagging feeling tugging at me until we find this murderous mastermind. coming to this lake. I still do. I think I probably always will. It's a peaceful place. A calming place. My mind wonders when I'm here. You know, it's scary to realize the sheer amount of people that can be affected by just one man's decisions. It breaks my heart to think of everyone touched by these crimes. People like little Noah Madsen, who lost both his parents. It only takes one man to cause so much pain to those he encounters. The branches of evil, indeed, spread far. John William James's venom extended to Valerie Madsen, George Madsen, Jacob Nielsen, Lloyd McGowan and Heather Williams not to mention the three homicides that she committed for him all murdered all gone from this earth and for what? because John William James had a difficult childhood 
The guy murdered his own parents for Christ's sake. Millions of us have hard upbringings and don't lash out like this. John William James wanted to control and manipulate the world, kind of like a cult leader. And it's sad to think he had so much potential. Potential to change the world for good, to make a positive impact during his time. John is clearly a genius, a one of a kind. But he ultimately made the choice to go down a path of deceit and destruction. He's a man who values himself above everyone and loves to hear himself. I guess it's kind of ironic he's been quiet for this long. But I know he's out there somewhere spinning webs to lure in new victims. Probably reading Greek mythology and staring at the nighttime sky looking to the constellations. I've witnessed a lot of interesting and brilliant criminals throughout my time working this job. But I have never come across someone as unique as John William James. This case has profoundly changed me, and I urge you to keep your family and friends close, because you may never know if a coworker, a neighbor, or a lover hiding in plain sight may be John William James. months later. I can't believe it's our first anniversary. Yeah, time flies. It's crazy. Are you going to take me out to dinner or something? I want to go to Nebraza. Already one step ahead of you. We have reservations for 7 p.m. What? No way. Yeah, totally. You should go get dressed. Seriously? Yeah, come on. You don't have a lot of time. Wow. Awesome. I can't wait. All right. Give me 15 minutes. I'll be here. Who's that? I don't know. I'll go get it. Go get dressed. Okay. Hi, can I help you? Well, hello, my dearest friend. This has been a Circular Logic Studios presentation. A Phil Interrupted Production. Hunting a Killer was produced and written by Phil and Jessica Allen. Starring Jessica Allen as Special Agent Jess. Phil Allen as Detective Allen. 
Matt Gehrig as FBI security. Karima Cooley as Sandy. Connor Bramley as Noah. And Aiden Bramley as Professor Ravenclaw. Editing by Phil Allen. Based on Hunt a Killer. Thank you.